Hey everybody, how are you doing? Hope you're all good. Welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast right here live on YouTube. Uh, we're also available wherever you get your podcasts as well. So if you miss any of the live stream and you fancy catching up with it or you just prefer to listen while you're doing something else, you can find us on all audio platforms as well. On this episode, we're going to be looking back on Arsenal's 2-1 win over Nottingham Forest in the Premier League. A big victory for the Gunners. It was a game, I think, given the fact that we play Liverpool at the weekend, we we desperately needed to take all three points from. It didn't feel at certain points in that game as if we were going to take all three points, despite us being incredibly dominant in terms of possession, in terms of um, territory and all the rest of it. So to get out of there with all three points and to make that drive back down to London, knowing that we've set up the game against Liverpool at the weekend very, very nicely is a big boost and certainly is a big positive. I talked about after the FA Cup defeat at the hands of Liverpool, the need to go and beat Crystal Palace and to go and beat Nottingham Forest so that when we come up against Liverpool, we have a real good opportunity of closing that deficit on them. Now, at the moment, at the time of recording, we're just two points behind the league leaders. But of course, they're in action tonight against Chelsea and they can re-establish that five-point lead with a victory um, over them. But to go into Sunday's game knowing that a win would put us right back into the mix, right back into the equation, is huge. What more motivation do you need as a footballer? What more motivation as a team do you need than that? To know that, okay, you've had a bit of a rough patch, over the course of the last couple of months, you've not been as consistent as you know you need to be to win this league. But you know what? The door's still a little bit open. And if you can uh, jump in before it slams shut in the form of taking all three points against Liverpool, then great. I know the Liverpool game is, is still a few days away and we're going to do a full preview show on that, of course. But I just look at that and I see that as a real season-defining fixture now. But it could only be a season-defining fixture if we did our job in the build-up to that. It's been difficult January. There haven't been many games. Arsenal have played just, what, three times over the course of the month. Um, the calendar's going to get pretty hectic now. But sometimes, although it's good to be fresh and, and rested, and I think actually that told in the latter stages of the game last night, with the exception of maybe the last couple of minutes, um, you know, Forrest have played way more than us in the month. And I think particularly from sort of 60 minutes onwards, up until when Taiwo Awani scored a goal out of nowhere. Forrest looked leggy, they looked tired, and we looked far superior, probably as a result of not playing. Um, but sometimes, yeah, it's great to have the rest, it's great to be fresh, but it can also leave you lacking rhythm, and it can also leave you a little bit rusty. And I think, um, you know, we've suffered from a bit of that over the course of this month. Look, we're going to break it all down. We're going to uh, discuss individual performances. We're going to talk about the first half, the second half, the key moments, the goals. We'll talk Gabby Jesus. We're going to talk Saka. We're going to talk Emile Smith-Rowe as well, who started. We're also going to dive into the alleged bust-up between uh, Ben White and Alexander Zinchenko full-time. Um, and we'll get into our player ratings a little bit later on in the show as well. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Chronicles of a Guna podcast. Like, subscribe, all the rest of it. And we're going to dive into the game from start to finish right after this. Don't go anywhere. Okay, let's start off with Mikel Arteta's team selection. He made two changes to the side that beat Crystal Palace comfortably 
at the Emirates Stadium back on the 20th. He brought in Gabriel Martinelli on the left-hand side, which I think a lot of us expected given that he came off the bench, scored a couple of goals, and it looked like he's found his confidence again, didn't it? There would have been no reason after that not to start him, in my opinion. Um, I think he is clearly someone that offers something that Mikel Arteta really, really values in terms of his directness, in terms of his ability to stretch sides. And to have him firing is really, really important. He came off the bench in that game and Mikel Arteta did say after that game that part of the reason or suggested that part of the reason that Gabby Martinelli didn't start that was because he was carrying a bit of a knock. He obviously looked at the game state and thought, the way this is going, the way it's become all a little bit open, the way um, you know we're in cruise control now, there's a good chance that Martinelli could come on, get a goal that could really do his confidence the world of good. He comes on, he doesn't just get one, he gets two. And so he was always going to start for me up at the city ground last night. The other change saw Emil Smith-Rowe start. It was just the second Premier League start since May 2022. That's how significant that was. Great to see him um, in the starting lineup. He's preferred over Kai Havertz on this occasion. And I think a lot of people have been talking over the course of the break. And again, this is probably a consequence of there being a break and maybe not much to discuss. And so people's minds go into overdrive and and you start to look for things that maybe aren't really there, myself included. You know, there was this feeling and there was this kind of notion that it didn't really matter what Emil Smith-Rowe did in training. He wasn't going to get a crack at the first team again. He wasn't going to get a go under Mikel Arteta. And, you know, we come back from our, what, 10-day period off and he's in the starting lineup, replacing Kai Havertz um, and uh, and playing in that left eight position. I looked at it when the team news came out and I thought, well, this is your chance. You know, you really need to take this opportunity with both hands. You need to stake your claim for a place in the starting eleven. One of the things I've always said over the course of, of January is that, yeah, great, we've got him and he's back and he's available, which is great. But how fit is he? The only way he's going to get fit is by playing minutes on the pitch against real opposition um, and in competitive situations and scenarios. Not, you know, playing in training. It does help, obviously, but it doesn't just sharpen you up, does it, for that uh, level that you require when you're playing at the top end of the Premier League. He's got, what, 20-odd minutes, 25 minutes, I think, against Crystal Palace, which was longer than we'd seen him get before in recent times. And then he got a good 70-odd minutes uh, last night, which is, again, another step forward. I thought his performance was quite good too, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail um, as the show goes on. Both Declan Rice and Gabriel started the game. I did tweet during the day that I wouldn't be surprised if both of them started. Mikel Arteta's done this before, right? He's gone into game situations and said, yeah, you know, we've got a doubt here. We've got a doubt there. Um, this player hasn't been uh, available in training fully. Uh, they've participated in some, but not all of the sessions and et cetera, et cetera. You always knew that Declan Rice and Gabriel had a really, really good chance of starting the game. And both of them did in the end. The first half kicked off. And I have to say, I don't know if you've been to the city ground before. Um, the atmosphere before kickoff, I thought was tremendous. I thought it was really, really good. Um, I thought the noise that they were making inside the ground was 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 brilliant. It's superb. Um, it's one of the historic English football grounds because of the history that Nottingham Forest as a football club have. They're always well supported. I think there was about 29,000 uh, inside the ground last night. I just thought 
you know, when we got there and, and they started singing before the, the kickoff, I thought to myself, you know what, we're in for a rough ride tonight. And credit to Arsenal, because the way they came out in the first half, it was as if to say, we're not intimidated. We're not afraid. We're not scared. We're not um, going to fall in the trap of um, allowing the atmosphere to kind of get on top of us. We're going to go there. We're going to play our own game. We're going to be dominant and we're going to impose ourselves on you. And as a result, the atmosphere is going to flatten. It's going to flatline. And it did. It did. It really, really did. There were a few moments in the first half where Nottingham Forest threatened to break away and the crowd got up on their feet. There was a long-range effort. I remember from Danilo that was always rising, to be fair, over the top of, of David Raya's crossbar. But generally speaking, the atmosphere died because of how much of the ball Arsenal had. <laughs> it was very sort of Pep Guardiola-esque last night, wasn't it? 81% of the possession in that first period when I checked it. So you could look at that and you could say that was great. I thought that Bukayo Saka had the beating of Harry Toffolo, the Nottingham Forest left back from the very off. Um, I thought Emil Smith-Rowe was kind of ghosting into some really interesting positions. I thought that Jesus was busy up front. I thought that Odegaard was getting into those half spaces quite well. I thought at times we tried to overplay it in the first half. We tried to be overly intricate in certain situations. The performance was good up until that final decision-making process. Do I shoot? Do I look for the pass? It just got to that point and we just kept hitting a brick wall over and over again. Although I looked at it and I thought, we're so in control. I'm not concerned. And I do think that over time we are going to find that breakthrough here. So there's nothing to be massively alarmed about at the break. When I thought about it, I was kind of sitting there and I was going, well, yeah, we've had all of the ball. We've had some attempts at goal. We've done this. We've done that really well. But has Matt Turner had to make any one singular save of note in this first period? And the answer was no. And that was kind of my frustration at the break. I thought the overall performance was really, really good. Um, and I thought the overall um, display in terms of limiting Nottingham Forest to just being a counter-attack inside, which we're really well equipped to deal with nowadays as well, particularly when it was Chris Wood up front. You know, you looked at it and it was, right, let's try and get it up early to Chris Wood and get people up in support of him. Chris Wood, strong, powerful, physical player in a really good run of form at this moment in time. But Saliba and Gabriel could just eat him up. And as a result, Nottingham Forest had no outlet in that first half. And they found it really, really difficult to make things happen. The second half begun and Nuno Espirito Santo obviously realised that and recognised that at the break because he brought Taiwo Awani, who's been out for a while, off the bench, despite having had, I think, two training sessions uh, in the lead up to this game. He brought him on at half time because he felt clearly that his Nottingham Forest side were being pinned back, were under a lot of pressure, were not able really to to lay a glove on Arsenal themselves and that they needed someone a little bit more physical um, and a little bit stronger. Um, you know, to, to go that bit more direct and be able to kind of give them a bit of respite and allow them to get up the pitch when necessary. And I got the impression about 10, 15 minutes into the second half that I don't want to go as far as saying Forrest's legs had gone, but you could start to see bigger spaces uh, appearing in between the lines. In the first half, they did a really good job of, you know, having that compact back four and then using both Danilo and Mangala um, as a kind of protective screen. The two of them did a really, really good job. 
And the gaps between those guys and the back line were really, really small in that first half. It's why maybe we had to try and be really intricate at times. And, and maybe, you know, at times when we got in and around the box, our players were instantly crowded out. Once the second half began and, and 10, 15 minutes had elapsed, I think you could see that those gaps were getting bigger and bigger. Odegaard was all of a sudden receiving the ball and able to take two, three touches. The same for Emil Smith-Rowe. He was able to take the ball, turn and carry it towards the Nottingham Forest penalty area. So things just started to open up a little bit for us. And eventually, through a bit of brilliance from Gabriel Jesus, and to be fair, you've got to give him his flowers as well. Some quick thinking from Zinchenko. Arsenal were able to break the deadlock. It's a quick throw in, into Jesus, into the box. Angle is completely against him. Clearly is well aware of the fact that being the centre forward himself and being in that position, there is unlikely to be anyone attacking the six-yard box area. So I think he goes into street footballer mode, Gabriel Jesus there. He gets his head down. He carries the ball. He gets closer and closer to the goal. He's well aware that there's no nobody inside of him, nobody in a position that's noteworthy anyway. And what does he do? He looks up. He spots Matt Turner coming out and he puts it through his legs and squeezes it in. Sometimes in a game like that, when you are facing a low block, when you are struggling to break an opposition down, when they are sitting on the edge of their penalty spot, uh, penalty area, not allowing you much space in behind. And the only way you can kind of get in behind is to go around from a wide area. You need that bit of individual brilliance. And you need also the confidence and the audacity to try something like that. And Jesus, you know, for all the talk about him not being a killer in front of goal and, you know, not being as deadly as some of the other top strikers in the Premier League, which I agree with, generally speaking, you can't deny that the guy's clearly full of confidence and has so much belief in his own ability because to even take that on, you know, it would have been easy for him to kind of check back onto his right foot and go, oh, look, there's no one there and then have to pull it back to the edge of the box. But if that had happened, if that was the case, no Arsenal fan would have gone, oh my God, Gabby, what are you doing? But he wasn't going to have that anymore. Um, he wasn't going to um, hide. He wasn't going to check back inside onto the right foot. He was going to make the difference. He was convinced that he was going to make the difference. And when you listen to Mikel Arteta speak after the game, he talked about the fight that Jesus seemed to have to, to be fit for this game. He had some fluid on the knee. And I remember tweeting before the game when he was warming up that his knee was quite heavily strapped. And, you know, that didn't look like a good sign. Obviously, he fought tooth and nail to make sure he was available for this one. And on the day, he was the difference maker. As I say, the audacity to try and squeeze it in from there, to have the quality to execute it, you know, and and then obviously to make a big impact in the build-up to the second goal as well, is exactly what we need Gabriel Jesus to be doing on a regular basis, being the difference. Last season, he did it a lot. It wasn't always um, the one putting the ball in the back of the net as he did last night. But he was very often a difference maker in terms of creating things, in terms of dribbling, committing players, creating spaces. He's a big, big player for us and we need him at his best. And Mikel Arteta alluded to that yesterday. And that goal was was so enjoyable to watch. And when it comes out of nowhere, it, it kind of feels even, even better, doesn't it? It wasn't like he was through on goal, had loads and loads of time, um, had time to set his body shape up. You could see where he was going to put it. He literally gets in behind, gets as far as just before the byline, and slots it underneath the onrushing Matt Taylor, uh, Matt Taylor, Matt Turner, I beg your pardon, 
um, to find at the back of the net. I don't know why I called him Matt Taylor. Who's Matt Taylor? That must that must be in my mind somewhere. Um, big hello to everybody who is watching us at the moment. Remember, if you haven't done so already, please leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel if you're brand new as well. It really, really does help. Let me say a few hellos before we move on to the second goal and the rest of all the things on my list to discuss. Big hello to Owen, uh, to Junior. Uh, we've got uh, Junior Gunner. We've got Jimmy, Amira, Afsar is with us. Uh, Matt is with us. He says, always feels horrible uh, to support Chelsea, but got to be done tonight. Yeah, I mean, it has to be done tonight, doesn't it? It's not supporting, it's willing them on. That's how I like to put it. Um, that's how I like to put it. Uh, Paul and Dungu, it's having a little bit of a pop at Gabriel Jesus. I know Jesus won us the game, he says, but my God, he's not a striker. He's not a traditional centre-forward. He's not. But Arsenal managed, I think, 88 goals in the Premier League last season without having a traditional striker through the middle. So it's clearly something that works for us. And although there have been times where his performances have been frustrating and the fact that he's been out with injuries has been incredibly frustrating at times too, you can't deny the guy's importance to this team and in this setup and in this system. Uh, Matt Gooner says, I remember you having the debate with Dan and Lee, Harry, after Martinelli had been out a long time. Mikel is very cautious after long-term injuries. Yeah, unless it's Thomas Partey, who he just throws back in whenever he can, well, has done in the past out of desperation. But look, the more options you have, the more cautious you can be. And in that left eight position, although we might sit here and say that not all of those options are ideal, um, you know, he, he did go into the season with Havertz, Vieira, um, you know, as well. And, you know, he'd have hoped that he had Thomas Partey to play in the six and then maybe Rice as well. Rice has played in the left eight at times as well. So you can put him down as an option too. I think particularly in a Mill Smith-Rose case where he's had a few problems, where he's had to have surgery and all the rest of it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with being cautious. What I get frustrated with is when people jump to conclusions like, well, he didn't start this game, which means that Mikel Arteta doesn't want him. And it means that we're definitely going to sell him in the summer. I'm not saying we're not going to sell him in the summer, by the way. We might. We might because I think he's one of those players that could fetch a really, really good price. And at some point, as I've always maintained on this podcast, there will be a point where we have to think about the 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 other side of, of the coin, which is bringing money in. We've been outlaying it for a long time. We're going to have to bring some in at some point as well. Um, we'll come on to Emil Smith-Rowe in a minute because I know there are some comments about him in the chat. Uh, we'll get into those uh, in, in a bit. Big shout out to uh, the Guna Talk. Uh, go over and give Tom a subscribe if you haven't done so already. Um, great channel. Um, brilliant content every single day. 8 a.m. 8 a.m. Man, I, I still can't get my head around how Tom uh, manages to pull that off. I tell you what, after driving back from the city ground last night, I was in no state to do a podcast at 8 a.m. I got up this morning at six because I was uh, doing a little bit on TalkSport breakfast. And then I went straight back to bed, slept for an hour, got up again, um, and then went and took my boy to school. And when I came home, I still felt terrible. Maybe I'm getting too old for this. And I, I was like, no, you know what? I need to lay down for a little bit longer before I start my day. Um, I'd rather work later. Um, but have that bit of rest in the morning because, uh, yeah, my God, I needed it after that. Also, I know this is nothing to do with Arsenal, nothing to do with football. If you are, well, it is kind of to do with football. If you are one of those that, that does the away trips, the midweek ones especially, 
and you're driving back late at night, my biggest advice to you is, is make sure that you're rested. Make sure that you stop. Make sure that you have a break. I didn't stop last night because Nottingham to London isn't that far. A couple of hours. Um, there was a bit of traffic on the M1, which extended my journey time by probably about 15 or 20 minutes. But there was a car in front of me as I was driving back. As I got to the junction from the M1 where you joined the M25, where the guy had clearly dozed off. Like not not completely dozed off, but he'd clearly had a bit of a lapse in terms of his concentration on the road because he drifted from one lane to another. It, I saw it unfold in front of me and there was a lorry coming up alongside him in the other lane. And fortunately, the lorry driver kind of spotted this coming, hit his beep really loud. And obviously that jolted the guy into action and he kind of swerved back into his lane. And it just kind of reminded me who, you know, myself felt a little bit, you know, tired at times, kept opening the window and all the rest of it. Don't want the car too hot because that makes me sleepy as well, all the rest of it. But it's just a reminder that if you are driving um, back from games at that time, man, like it don't matter what time you get home, you're better off getting home safe. So take that break. Um, he, he obviously needed it. And thankfully, uh, nothing bad happened in the end, but it could have done. Okay, so at this point, Arsenal uh, will go back into the game timeline. Arsenal leading the game by a goal to nil. And I have to say, I felt really, really comfortable at 1-0. I know it was only 1-0, but I felt really comfortable because I felt that we'd limited Nottingham Forest to basically nothing. But there is always that thing in the back of your mind. You think about our title challenge last season and kind of how it unraveled. It was because we threw away leads. Um I do feel like Arsenal have greater control now than they did then, generally speaking, as a team. I think we're better at managing the threat of counter-attacks now than we were probably last season. Um, so I do take some encouragement from that. Maybe at 1-0 I was wrong to feel as comfortable as I did, but I certainly did feel comfortable. And then Arsenal get the second goal. What was it, seven, eight minutes later? Or I think it was Montiel uh, played the ball straight into Odegaard. Arsenal break away, out to the left it goes for Gabriel Jesus. Saka's busting a gut to get forward on the right. Jesus plays the pass across. And what I really, really enjoyed about this goal from Bukayo Saka was that he didn't take the touch, cut back in onto the left foot as you'd expect him to do. He had the confidence and the belief in his right foot to once he kind of shifted the ball into position or once the board found its way across his body, to just unleash a powerful low strike back across Matt Turner's goal and give him no chance. If you hit the target, you keep it low and hard like that. You make it really difficult for the goalkeeper. Saka did exactly that, and it was a really good finish. And at that point, you thought, game over, done, three points on the board. Let's let's try and, um, and just kind of cruise through the remainder of this. Let's try and, you know, maybe make a couple of changes if, if able uh, to do so, so that we can be, you know, in a, in tip-top shape come Sunday's game against uh, Liverpool. Look, Liverpool play tonight, um, so we do have an extra 24 hours. The difference is that Liverpool play at home, I guess. Does that kind of even itself out? I don't think Nottingham is enough of a journey, really, for it to, you know, leave you struggling um, afterwards. So I'd, I'd probably prefer to have the extra night than than the, the sort of home game there. Um, but yeah. I thought that at 2-0, we were in cruise control. It's a really good goal, really well-worked goal. And Jesus, this time, turning from, um, you know, goal scorer to provider and showing the other side of his game. And that's why I thought it was a really good 
well-rounded performance uh, from him on the night. So we're 2-0 up at that point, and you think the game is, is coming to, um, you know, the, the conclusion that we all hoped for when we arrived there. Brilliant. Arsenal, two goals to the good, on their way to collecting three points, and then we go and concede a goal. Now, there's a part of me that wants to be really annoyed about the fact that we conceded this goal because you almost give the opposition in a situation like that, who are dead and buried, really, you, you give them encouragement. You give them something to kind of grab onto and you give the crowd something to kind of spark into life for. And although, you know, when you concede it on 89 minutes, as long as you're professional enough, the chances of you conceding a second are not that high. It doesn't feel like that at the time. It doesn't feel like that when Nottingham Forest are cheering every ball forward. It doesn't feel like that when they celebrated winning a corner in stoppage time as if they just bloody won, uh, as if they just bloody scored a goal. Like when you're in the ground, and I'm sure when you're watching it on TV as well, you feel incredibly nervous in those situations and in those moments. I watched the goal back and obviously there was a VAR check for a couple of things. First, they were looking as to whether or not Gonzalo Montiel had strayed into an offside position. He didn't. And then they were looking at whether Taiwo Awaniyi had committed a foul against, um, I think it was Saliba. Um, and the answer to me is is no, none of them. Um, the goal should have stood, correct decision, no, no issues with that whatsoever. I look back at the goal and I'm like, right, who can I point the finger at? Because that's what we do, right? That's what we do as fans, as people that analyze the games. We we want to um we want to find a reason as to why we conceded this goal so that we can um try and fix it moving forward. The ball over the top of Zinchenko, could he have done better? Was he caught out again? Look, I think he probably was caught out um by that ball over the top of him. But when it comes to Zinchenko, I'm kind of in a place where I just know what it is, right? I, I know what he is. I know that he's not a, a natural left back. I know that he doesn't have the build of some of our other fullback options in terms of being that bit stronger, that bit taller. But equally, we've got to find a way of stopping this because it's way too easy for teams when they're wanting to, to get in behind us to pick up the ball in a midfield position and just go diagonal over the top of Zinchenko. It's not just about his size. It's not just about his stature. The guy just doesn't have a natural defensive bone in his body. And as a result of that, I think he takes too long to adjust himself. I think he takes too long to get into position. There are some passes that are so good that you can forgive him. I go back to the one at Liverpool where Trent Alexander-Arnold dropped that ball over the top of his head for Mo Salah, which led to their goal. And I think Zinchenko could have done much more in terms of making it difficult for Mo Salah to cut in on that occasion. But in terms of the ball over the top of him, I thought the the drive on the pass and the trajectory of the pass made it a really, really difficult one for a defender to deal with. And I think someone with slightly more height might have done a better job of dealing with it that day, but I can't add inches to Zinchenko's height. Like So that's a moot point, isn't it? But this time, I thought he could have adjusted his body a little bit better. He should have been more aware of um of Montiel's presence and 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 in the end you know they managed to work the ball into the box. Awani bumps into um Saliba and again you know I look at it and I don't think it's a foul. I think it's just pure strength. And listen, there are not many forwards in the Premier League that can bump William Saliba and 
um, get away with it. We saw Erling Haaland um, be bumped by Saliba. We've seen others go toe-to-toe with him, shoulder-to-shoulder with him, and always pretty much come out second. Gabriel the same. They're both incredibly powerful um, specimens and, and, and incredible powerful defenders. Taiwo Awani is one player in the league that I think could rough up anybody, could bump into anybody. And particularly when you're the one with the momentum going into the duel and into the challenge. I also think Saliba got caught in maybe two minds as to where he should position himself as that move developed. And partly because he was probably thinking and aware of the fact that Gabriel would have to go out left to try and um, help out. Because as soon as that ball leaves... um, as soon as that ball leaves uh, the, the the midfielder's feet, you know that Zinchenko's in trouble. So Gabriel's natural inclination would have been to drift out there and try and um, uh, and try and uh, support, which then tempts and lures William Saliba, I think, into adjusting his position, which maybe results in him getting caught out um, and bumped into by Awani. Look, the ball drops really kindly for him, and he finishes it well, and all the rest of it. After that, did Forrest create anything of note? Not really. A couple of situations where they worked the ball into the penalty box, but generally we um, we we survived and, and handled it really well. I'll tell you who deserves a lot of cre- uh, credit and praise for the way we were able to, in the end, although it was way nervier than it should have been, this player deserves a lot of credit for his support and efforts in terms of us being able to see it out. And that is Leandro Trossard. When he came off the bench... His ability to hold the ball was just incredible. I know we, we we know he's capable of it. We know he's a great dribbler. We know he's a good carrier of the ball. Um, he had a great effort um, before Forrest pulled one back that kind of um, went over the top of, of Matt Turner's crossbar. It was always on the rise, that effort, but I thought it was deserving of more. But some of the, the br- moments of brilliance he showed in possession. And listen, when you're up against it and you know you're you're, you're kind of trying to hold on to a result you, yeah you want people to sit deep you want people to be strong well positioned but sometimes a bit of quality can make all the difference can't it a bit of quality can make so much of a, a, an impact the fact that he was able to get the ball dribble past a couple of players then go back around in a circle and sort of come with it again carry it across the pitch it just brought us time it brought us respite it it prevented Nottingham Forest really building ahead of steam in the last couple of minutes as they uh, went in search of that equaliser. So his uh, performance deserved a lot of praise. Again, going back to the goal just before we move on from that, I don't want to overanalyze too much. I don't want to pick on people too much. I think that against most other strikers, we deal with that. I just think that Taiwa Awani is such a unit, so powerful. And... Um, that's why he's a handful for anybody that he comes up against. And I think to kind of sit and be super critical of our defenders in this situation and in this scenario is probably going a little bit too deep, in my opinion, based on on what actually happened. <laughs> I'm not going to read Junior Gunner's comment, but very, very good. Like it. <laughs> uh, right. Um, let's talk uh, Emil Smith-Rowe. We've discussed Gabriel Jesus's performance at length. So I'm not going to go back over that. But Emil Smith-Rowe, how did he do? How did he fare? Because it was his only his second, I should say, uh, Premier League start since May 2022. What do we make of it? Let me know in the comments. So I thought his performance was largely positive. Um, I thought that there were uh, some really uh, good moments in terms of him trying to kind of force the issue in and around 
the Nottingham Forest penalty box. I thought particularly in the first half, there was one situation where he kind of drifted um, from that kind of inside left position towards uh, the centre of Nottingham Forest's penalty area, around about where the D was, and a loose ball broke, and he managed to kind of get himself ahead of the defenders, get onto it, and he tried to bend one, didn't he, into the top right corner. Couldn't quite execute it in the way that I'm sure he kind of dreamed of, but or, or saw it in his mind as he approached the ball. But it was a really, really good effort nonetheless. It was another moment in the first half where um, we had managed to work the ball into the penalty area. I think Jesus was involved. I think Martinelli was involved. And the ball kind of broke inside the box. And Emil Smith-Rowe was the quickest and sharpest to react. And he just got a toe to the ball to kind of tee it up for Bukayo Saka, whose effort then took a deflection, uh, but certainly looked like it was bound for the bottom corner. So Emil Smith-Rowe, to me, um, looked like he was not always on the ball, maybe as much as I'd like in the first half in terms of... You know, some people would disagree with this. I like Emil Smith-Rowe to be involved in the build-up. I, I like him to be that guy. But I also think that that's Martin Odegaard's job as well. And maybe the idea of of playing Odegaard along with another kind of similar-minded left eight in terms of the attacking um, sort of bias and, and the want to, to get forward more than to prioritise defending is maybe because he wants that left eight to be the one that takes the gamble in terms of their positioning, that makes that run into the box. You know, we, we see it with Kai Havertz. Um, you know, you think about the logic behind bringing Kai Havertz in to play that position, essentially. You you keep coming back to the fact that he's a more attack-minded player than Granit Xhaka was. And so if you want one of your midfielders to take a gamble and, and essentially become an additional forward at times, you want someone who's a little bit more forward thinking and, and who's more capable of doing damage in the final third. Emil Smith-Rowe's role was that last night. Um, so whilst at halftime I was sitting there and I was going, yeah, he's been okay. He's looked good in, in flashes and in moments. I'd quite like to see him get on the ball more. When I think back about the contributions that he made in the first half, it's clear to me that, no, his task was to be the one that drifts and ghosts into positions. And we saw him score plenty of goals before this period of injuries began to suggest that he can do that and he can impact the games in the final third. When the second half started, I thought he played the game slightly differently, but that's because the game state was different. As I mentioned a little bit earlier on in the podcast, there was more space. There was more room um, for him to travel into with the ball at his feet. I think in the first half, he spent a lot of time coming really wide um, with Gabriel Martinelli trying to link up with him. And then at other times he drift in towards the edge of the penalty area, looking to make things happen there. I thought in the second half, because there was more space in between the lines, he was more inclined to kind of drop into a more traditional midfield position, get on the ball and try and make things happen that way. I think when he plays, you know, those little intricate, exchanges with people. That's when Emil Smith-Rowe's at his best. I think we've seen over the years that when he gets the ball inside the box, he can um, uh, be, be be used to devastating effect. We've all seen that before. So I think Emil Smith-Rowe does have a future in that role, in that position. I, I do think that. I think he's equally as effective. In fact, you know what? I say he's more effective than Kai Havertz in that role when you're looking at the attacking side only, I think Kai Havertz plays it differently. Obviously, they're, they're two different players. But I think Smith-Rowe gives you that. Where I think Smith-Rowe maybe falls down a little bit, and I think Mikel Arteta will take this into consideration 
in some of the, uh, quote, bigger games is that I don't think defensively he's as um, he's as useful as Kai Havertz. And that's not because he doesn't try or he doesn't work hard. It's, it's because of a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't think he's anywhere near his peak fitness level, which impacts your ability to get back and support and then get back into the forward positions that you need to be in. And to constantly do that is quite demanding and quite difficult. But also his physical stature isn't the same as Kai Havertz is. He isn't going to support you in defending set pieces. He isn't going to be able to, to make that run and get up alongside Gabriel Jesus when we go that little bit more direct and be the one that wins the knockdown. It's not Emil Smith-Rowe's game. And again, can't add inches to Zinchenko, as we mentioned earlier, and I'm talking about height inches, nothing else to be clear. Um, and you can't do that with Emil Smith-Rowe either. Um, so, yeah, I think there are some things uh, that make him really kind of well-equipped to play that role. I think there are other things where maybe he falls down a little bit, but it's horses for courses, right? To have those different options for different games, I think is massive. I talk about him not being at his premium, premium fitness level. How can he be? You know, he's played so little football over such a long period of time that he's always going to be a bit rusty. And, you know, towards the end of his, of his display yesterday, I thought he... Uh, just faded a little bit, but not through any fault of his own, just because, as I say, you know, he, he didn't have more than 60-odd minutes in the tank, really, and we got to about 70, I think, when we took him off. So, look, there's lots more to come from Emil Smith-Rowe. The performance was good. There were lots of encouraging signs. I wouldn't go as far as saying it was outstanding. I've seen some people say that it was brilliant and it was wonderful. He's a beautiful footballer to watch. He's so elegant in the way he carries the ball. Um, you know, very easy on the eye in terms of the, the the style of the player. It's all great to see. I think the the most significant thing to take away from yesterday's game when it comes to Emil Smith-Rowe is not what he did in the game in terms of, you know, direct impact and, you know, you know, contributing to the, to the victory in terms of, you know, those means, i.e. scoring a goal, creating an assist, all the rest of it. Um, I think it's the fact that Mikel Arteta had the trust in him, despite Kai Havertz being available. He's been a favourite of Arteta's really this season. I know he's left him out the side a few times, but he's been a regular selection. For Mikel Arteta to look at Emil Smith-Rowe and think, yep, you know, you've you've been um, working really, really hard in training. You're getting there. You're getting closer to the level that we want you to be in terms of your fitness. Ability, there's no question about. But I'm at the point now where I'll trust you again after, you know, everything you've been through. I think that's the big point here. I think that's the the key takeaway from last night when it comes to Emil Smith-Rowe. It's not that he was amazing because he wasn't amazing. He was good. It was a solid performance from Emil Smith-Rowe. And I thought, as I said, he ran out of gas towards the end, which is understandable. It's not criticism of him. But I think the big takeaway is that it's clear that Mikel Arteta does trust him, that he does have a place in this group, that he does have a future at Arsenal Football Club, should he want it. So for me, that's what I'm kind of looking at and, and taking away and, and, and banking as my top line when it comes to a Smith throw at Nottingham Forest last night. Let me know what you think uh, in the comments. Uh, let's see what you guys are saying. Um, Jay says uh, Smith Rowe is at his best when he plays those one twos, but whoever plays left eight does nothing because Odegaard hogs the ball 24 7. It, it's not as simple as saying Odegaard hogs the ball. What it is is that Odegaard and Saka are two of our really important players, 
And we funnel and channel a lot of our play down that side as a result and as a consequence. And so naturally, whoever plays at left eight probably is less involved. But that's why I talk about the importance of that player um, being someone who can spot an opportunity in terms of being able to take a gamble and, and drifting into a position from which they might end up getting a goal scoring opportunity or something like that. That's the thinking behind playing a more uh, attack minded left eight than we had last season. That's the idea and the theory behind it. Whether that works or not, I think we're going to judge come the end of the season. But um, yeah, the left eight, I think, has a responsibility to ghost into areas. But that doesn't always mean you're going to get the ball and you're going to be the one um, that, that is constantly in possession. So that's something that we have to manage as fans as well, I think, when we're judging and assessing these players. Kevin the Gooner uh, joining us via X says he just needs more game time. Things will click with the other lads the more he plays. Yeah, relationships are a big deal as well. You know, you 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 play with people regularly. You understand their habits. You understand their movement. Um, and, and things start to become second nature. He hasn't played much with Gabriel Jesus. He hasn't played that much with Gabriel Martinelli, really, when you think about it, because when Emil Smith-Rowe was at his best for Arsenal prior to the injury problems beginning, he was the one playing on the left-hand side. He hasn't played that much with Martin Odegaard as part of the same midfield. Um, so he's going to have to learn and, and understand those guys' habits. He hasn't played much with Zinchenko coming into midfield and invading territory, essentially, and then come to grips with and come to terms with what that means for him and what areas he should be drifting into and, and moving into in order to open the space for Zinchenko, who likes to do that. And obviously that's a part of our system. So relationships here are massive. They really, really are. Um, what else have we got? Uh, do, 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 uh, off topic, but um, no, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, Jay Sayers says... Um, it just makes the Havertz transfer an even bigger mistake, given, uh, given I beg your pardon, Emil Smith-Rowe is just as good, even though he's played five games in two years. Again, like, what? why do we always have to go down this route? Like, why do we always have to go down the whole, um, you know, oh, Kai Havertz is a waste of money route. Like, Emil Smith-Rowe is a great player. It's great to have him in the squad. It's great to have him back. And over the course of the season, we're going to need moments from both of them if we're going to achieve what we're hoping to between now and the end of the campaign. I'm going to take another really short pause. Then we're going to touch on that bust up after the full-time whistle between Zinchenko and Ben White. Then I'm going to bring you my player ratings, uh, as well as uh, discussing the significance of this win, which we'll gloss over because we kind of touched on it in the intro, which was unintentional. But now I think about it, probably touched on a lot of the points that I was going to make in that section. So we'll just do that bit nice and quickly. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna Pod. <laughs> Welcome back along to the show. Okay, um, let's do the post-match bust-up, if you want to call it that. It seemed that Zinchenko and Ben White had exchanged some strong words at the full-time whistle, which led in quite a heated altercation. And I don't know exactly what it was about, but I can only assume that it was to do with Arsenal's conceding of, of the goal. And then the subsequent pressure that maybe they felt they were under as a result of that. Was there a feeling from one or the other that maybe um, we'd kind of taken our foot off the gas, that we were being a bit silly, a bit lax, um, a little bit complacent? I certainly think that if 
one of them had a case around that, it would have been Ben White making the case to Zinchenko rather than the other way around. Look, I don't have a problem with this. I don't have an issue with players challenging one another. And I think Mikel Arteta did a really good job of kind of, you know, painting it in a positive light and in a positive picture after the game. I think that players need to challenge each other. Players need to push each other. Players need to make sure um, that the standards are always maintained, regardless of how easy it may feel in any game at any given point. The the taking your foot off the gas thing in the Premier League, it can't happen because we've all seen it time and time and again, come back to bite people on the backside. You can't allow the standards to drop. You need to see it out right until the very end because, yeah, okay, I didn't feel like at 2-1 Nottingham Forest created much, but they only needed one situation, one more mistake. The margins were very, very fine in the end for Arsenal and they didn't need to be. And clearly it looks like Ben White felt that we were in that situation because there was a bit of a taking a foot off the gas um, and maybe a lapse in concentration from, from Alexander Zinchenko. Mikel Arteta had to get involved in this. He had to um, essentially pull Zinchenko to one side as Ben White headed off in the other direction. And I don't know what he said to him, but it felt along the lines of um, not here sort of thing. And and Arteta, as I say, in the media afterwards, painted it as a, a positive thing. Challenging is great. Challenging is fine. It's a healthy thing. As long as there's a respect for one another, that it doesn't become something more um, and it doesn't become something that you hold grudges about and, and, and impact the team spirit going forward. I think people need to challenge each other. People need to do their bit as leaders in the dressing room to make sure that the standards are upheld at all times. In an ideal world, I'd prefer not to see that on the pitch. In an ideal world, I'd prefer that to happen once the players have gone down the tunnel and once they're out of the public view. Because it's it, it's not necessarily about what it does now. It's about the stories and the narratives that it could create further down the line. Arsenal go and lose a couple of games. Zinchenko makes a mistake. Ben White makes a mistake. All of a sudden, it's because the two fullbacks are at loggerheads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That might not even be the case. But it's too easy a story to give some of these rags um, the, the, the excuse to write. So I would prefer that you don't see it on the pitch. I would prefer that this gets dealt with and that the confrontation happens in the dressing room. But I understand that football is an emotional game and sometimes your emotions can get the better of you. And in the heat of the moment, it's not always easy to hold back. I don't think it's damaging in any way. I'm not concerned about it. I'm not worried, given what we know about the, the spirit of this group and the characters of the two players involved. I'm not worried that this becomes a thing. There's a tiny part of me that enjoyed seeing it, that loved to see it, because it's a bit of steel, a bit of needle. Um, and I think you need to be on the edge of you know aggression um, in order to perform at your absolute maximum. But yeah, as I say, I prefer that it happens behind closed doors if possible. But obviously, yesterday it wasn't. <laughs> um, what else have we got in the chat? There's lots of... Um, there's lots of uh, there's lots of chat about this situation. Um, Hacker says sell Ben White. <laughs> no, it was it was fine. Um, Thomas and friends thinks that Ben White was was massively out of order. He says you can see why Ben White wasn't liked in the England camp. He was bang out of order. I mean, like, what are we saying that he did? Like, what what are we saying that he did wrong? 
Um, are you suggesting, judging by your next comment, that he should have confronted William Saliba about the, the goal? I think that the Zinchenko thing, i.e. him switching off in those moments and having balls dropped over the top of him and him not adjusting quickly enough and all the rest of it, it's happened so many times that if someone's going to lose their temper about it, I think they're well within their rights. I don't think Saliba getting bumped off the ball for maybe the first time in two seasons nearly is something worthy of going and having a go at him about. Now, again, I, I, as I stress the point that I made, I prefer to see this happen behind closed doors and in the dressing room. Um, you, you, you go on to say, Thomas, that Ben White wasn't perfect. I never said he was. Um, I never said he was. The other thing that Kevin Naguna points out is that Zinchenko played the, the guy on side. So not only does he not deal with the ball over the top, he doesn't have the um, awareness of what the rest of his back line are doing to step up at the right time and make sure that the guy gets caught offside as well. So, you know, I think it's it's one of those things that will do us good in terms of just making sure that the standards don't drop. Again, for the final time, I say I prefer that it was done in the changing room, but is it something that I think needs to be made a massive deal of? No, I don't. Um, I don't. Okay, we're going to take a short pause. When we come back, it's player ratings to finish off the show. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Chronicles of Agoon. Nottingham Forest 1, Arsenal 2. It's time now to bring you my player ratings. How did our players fare? On an individual level, I'll share with you my opinions uh, and my ratings. Feel free to get involved in the live chat if you disagree. If you're watching this back on playback as well, uh, leave your player ratings in the comments. I'm always interested to read people's player ratings after I put mine out. Um, I don't read player ratings before I put mine out. And the reason for that is because I don't want to be influenced um, by something I've seen or read. Uh, so I'm not ignoring your ratings in the chat if you're putting them in now. It's just that I don't want to be influenced. I will look at them afterwards. And as I say, if you're watching this on replay, make sure uh, you drop those in the comments section below. Let's start off with the goalkeeper, uh, David Raya. I'm going to give David Raya a seven. Um, I thought everything he did, he did with assurance. He did with calm. Um, and I thought, you know, it, it's, it's weird with David Raya, right? Because we're watching him time after time, not have to do much in games. Apart from at times, pick the ball out of his own net. Um, you know, a lot of the time it's nothing to do with him necessarily. Uh, the reason that we've conceded those goals. But I, I look at him and I I kind of want to be massively convinced. I'm not at the moment, but in fairness, I don't think he did everything anything wrong last night. And so my kind of base level performance is around about six, six and a half. Um, but I thought Raya was worthy of a seven yesterday because he he came out and punched a couple of crosses quite well. I thought he dealt with the ball at his feet quite well yesterday. Um, seven out of 10 for David Raya for me based on yesterday's performance. Moving into the defence, I'm going to give Ben White a seven as well. I thought he was solid for the most part. I thought he supported Bukayo Saka really, really well yesterday in terms of making the overlapping runs when he needed to. Also stepping into those more um, sort of uh, inside positions to give Saka the space to, to isolate Toffolo, which he'd done really, really well at certain points in the game. Uh, ben White's presence there meant that it was harder for Forrest to double up because they had to be mindful and wary of him coming forward. And that just afforded, uh, to me, um, Bukayo Saka a little bit more space than we normally see him get at the moment. Moving on to William Saliba, I'm going to give him a seven as well. Um, 
you know, I, I know that people are holding him accountable for the Forest goal. I think it's really harsh to do that. And I think outside of that, he looked pretty assured, pretty comfortable, pretty strong. Um, you know, both against Chris Wood and Taiwo Awani, with the exception of that one instance. So I'm going to give William Saliba a seven. Gabriel, I'm going to give him a seven and a half. I think Gabriel is is so good. He's fantastic. He really, really is. And I feel like he gets a rough ride because people are so in awe of William Saliba that they almost forget how good Gabriel is and how much of a positive impact he's having. So Gabriel, for me, gets a seven and a half. Zinchenko, I'm going to give him a six and a half because I thought outside of that one moment, he defended quite well, but also, um, you know, we needed him in order to try and breach the the, the Nottingham Forest defence. I wouldn't say that it was him who um, made the difference yesterday necessarily. You know, in other games he has, I, I don't think that was the case yesterday. But I don't think his performance overall was really bad. I wasn't sitting there all night worrying about him at left back. There was one instance where he got sort of uh, caught out a little bit. Six and a half for Zinchenko for me. So, so far we've got Raya seven, White seven, Saliba seven, Gabriel seven and a half, Zinchenko six and a half. Moving into midfield, um, I'm going to do Declan Rice first. I thought Declan Rice looked unfit. He didn't look as dominating, as sharp, as physical, as powerful as he normally does. And I think that we're in a position right now where without Thomas Partey, we're desperately um, needing to use him, even when he is 80%, 75% fit. I don't want us to be in that situation where we're overworking him and, and increasing the chances of him picking up an injury as a result of that. But he just didn't look quite at the levels that we've become accustomed to when it comes to Declan Rice. So I'm going to give him a six and a half. Again, it's not because he had a bad performance. It's not because he let us down or anything like that. It just wasn't the Rolls-Royce Declan Rice that we've become accustomed to in recent years, he, uh, recent years, recent months. He wasn't as quick across the ground, I didn't think. He wasn't as sharp in the challenge, I didn't think. Um, and I think that probably was because he was maybe just missing a little bit fitness wise at uh, six and a half for Declan Rice. Martin Odegaard, I'm going to give him a six. I thought he did some things well. I thought he popped up in the right pockets. I thought he, um, you know, did well in some instances. And I think with with Martin Odegaard, the pr problem he has this season is that everybody knows that Arsenal want to work everything through him. And he's often crowded out before he's even had a chance to, to bring the ball under control and look up. I thought in the first half, he was really frustrating. There was a few moments where he just tried to overplay. There was a couple of times where he played one twos and the ball was given back to him kind of on the corner of the box, edge of the box. And rather than taking a shot on or, or whatever, he, he would opt to then try and thread the ball through the eye of a needle and it just wasn't going to work. Um, so I'm going to give Martin Odegaard a six out of 10. I know some people will say that that's harsh, but I, I wasn't massively impressed with his display um, yesterday. Emil Smith-Rowe, I'm going to give him a seven. Um, I thought he did the things that Mikel Arteta demands of the left eight really, really well. I've got some doubts around whether or not that's what our left eight should be doing all the time. Um, I've got some doubts around whether or not um, our left eight should be a little bit more involved in the build-up and if that would in turn create spaces for others. Um, if he can kind of ghost into those areas and then drift out and, and get on the ball, does that mean that you, you bring defenders out of the defensive line with you? At the moment, what we see is that player just kind of ghost into crowds 
but it's very rare that the opposition end up sending someone to follow him when he does kind of come out of those areas. It's almost as if they're happy to say, we will pick you up when you come into our defensive line, but the rest of the time we're going to leave you to it. And I don't feel like whoever's playing at left eight at the minute is having as significant an impact as maybe their talent would allow, both in the case of, of Emil Smith-Rowe and Kai Havertz and Fabio Vieira when it's him as well. So, yeah, um, my issue is more with the role than the player. I'm going to give him a seven. It was great to see him back. There was a few moments where he threatened to really influence the game. Um, and, and, you know, 70 minutes in the tank is, is only good for him. Moving forward, uh, let's talk Bukayo Saka. I'm going to give Saka a seven and a half. I thought he did a really good job of being direct and constantly looking to get in behind Toffolo in the first half and obviously scored a really good goal in the second half and again provided us plenty of threat down that right-hand side. Saka's performances haven't always been great this season. He's been on the peripheries a lot of the time for me. Um, but this time, he seemed to be a bit more aggressive. Now, I mentioned Ben White's role in creating space for him and maybe it was a deficiency in Forrest's system that allowed it, uh, that allowed him to thrive. The fact that Forrest didn't play with a back five meant that they had to be narrower, which meant that it took a little bit longer to get out to him when he was received the ball on the uh, right-hand side. When we play against a back five, it's different. Um, and he, I think he struggles more in those scenarios and situations. But I thought he was good. Seven and a half out of ten uh, for Bukayo Saka for me. I'm going to give uh, Gabriel Martinelli a six and a half, I thought. I thought he was energetic. I thought he was trying to to make things happen. But for someone who, who should have been full of confidence after coming off the bench and scoring a couple of goals in the game before, I, I thought he was a little bit hesitant in terms of taking people on and, and attacking the byline, which is something that he normally does really, really well. I'm going to give Martinelli a six and a half. Gabriel Jesus uh, is my Arsenal man of the match. I'm going to give him an eight out of ten. Um, we know that he had issues being fit for the game and he managed to work through them. We know that, you know, he works tirelessly all the time. There's never a lack of effort um, from, from Gavi Jesus, regardless of what you think of the other elements of his game. I thought he was, um, he was obviously brilliant in the goal, in his goal, the way that he moved quickly, uh, managed to, to get the attention of Zinchenko and then made something out of nothing, essentially. And I thought he played a really smart role in the second goal where he picks up the ball on the left and he holds the ball for just the right amount of time. Um, and obviously the rest of the runners getting forward just kind of distracts the defenders, creates that space for Saka and the pass across is brilliantly weighted, brilliantly timed. And I think Gabriel Jesus on the night was our difference maker. I'm not going to give ratings to the subs today, but a special shout out to Leandro Trossard because I thought when he came on, he was really, really good. Um, not just offensively, but defensively as well in terms of um, helping us by maintaining possession in the difficult periods and in the difficult moments. So, um, yeah, uh, those are my player ratings for Nottingham Forest 1, Arsenal 2 in the Premier League. Guys, I am going to leave it there. Thank you all so, so much for joining me as always. Um, we're going to be back with another episode of the podcast tomorrow. So make sure you stay tuned. Uh, we're also going to be posting some bits on YouTube over the course of the day. Make sure you go into those videos, like them, uh, leave a comment, etc., etc. It really, really does help. And I will see you all tomorrow then on Thursday. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. Um, unless anything major breaks, then I might be back, but I doubt it. We're not going to do any business, are we? Uh, I'll catch you all soon. Until the next one, take care of yourselves. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in as always. Mm -hmm.